book of Romans. So um, if you've got a Bible, let's open the book of Romans. We're up to the chapter. You know, I've, I've often said to you each week, Romans is the best book within the best book. That's how I view it. And uh, people would say that this eighth chapter is the best chapter within the best book that's within the best book. Is that making sense to you? Um, that's the book of, that's Romans chapter eight. We've been making our way through it. So um, are you turned there? Let's, let's be good. Let's be good and do that. And um, Last week, in the, the end of the seventh chapter, we came to this, uh, this cry of the Apostle Paul. It's this, um, this passionate, it was a passionate cry. So I'm just going to read those last few verses and bring us back up to speed so we can make our way into the eighth chapter. He says this in verse 21, if you've got it in front of you. He says, I find then a, a law, excuse me, a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And here's that cry that the Apostle Paul makes. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Uh, before we go on, apologies. I know you can't see any screens. I know the bells are in the way, but it's only for a, it's only for a week or two, right? Um, you can see it? You all can see it? Oh, okay. Okay, so. Um, that's great. The bells are even better, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I like the bells. Yeah. So hear the cry, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I say it's a passionate cry because it is a passionate cry of the Apostle Paul. We've been watching and we've been making our way through the book of Romans, where the book of Romans begins by establishing the, the, the state of mankind, where man's heart is separate from God and that downward spiral that humanity is on and how man has chosen to worship the, the, the creature rather than the creator. And, uh, and we see that everywhere. We see that throughout this world. And, uh, and then he begins to unfold the condition of the human heart. He begins to speak about that. But then he begins to talk about the way back and how Christ has become the one who has made the way back for us. In chapter 7, chapter 6, he then goes in the direction of talking about the fact that, yes, Christ has made the way for us. He has paid the debt for our sin, and we are justified in him. It's a wonderful, the wonderful chapters of justification in chapter 4 going through, where we know what justification means, don't we? When someone is made just before God, we often say, just as if. We had never been separated from God. You might say just as if we had never sinned, just as if we had never uh, gone our own way. Because of what Christ has done, he has brought us back into fellowship with the living God. We have been washed clean. We like to say the Bible talks about the blood of Christ that cleanses us and continually cleanses us. But chapter 6 says now, but let's not take that for granted. Yeah, because Christ has done the work, does that mean we just continue living in such a way as if, we, as, if, as if we were beforehand? It's all been done by Christ. It's all taken care of so we can be however we want to be. And he said, no. He said, God forbid. He said, no, no. This cheap grace is not, is not something that we want to have in our minds and we think that we can just continue on in life. But God has, has, has set before us a holy standard, a righteous standard. But then, having said that, he goes into the seventh chapter, and the seventh chapter begins to talk about, yes, that's true, the standard of God is there, but there's this struggle within me. 
There's a struggle within me. And he talked about, you know, I want to do what is good. I'll refer to this again in a minute. He says, I want to do what is right, but I find myself always doing what is wrong. You know, that's the Apostle Paul speaking. You know, and, uh, and, and it's, that struggle against, it's that struggle against the old nature. And so when we come to this seventh, this eighth chapter, or the end of the seventh chapter, this incredible cry that the Apostle Paul makes. You know what it is? A wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from this body of death. A wretched man. The wretched man is the man who has tried it as, as much as he can to do it himself in all of his energies, in all of his, in all of his ways, in all of his own you know, self-contrived machinations on how life should be done properly and all of his efforts to please God and the things that he does. He realises he just can't do it himself and that's the wretched state that we all need to come to to be able to say, oh, wretched man that I am, I can't do this. I can't be what God wants me to be. I can't be. You know what he wants me to be? He wants me to be perfect. He wants me to be holy. He wants me to be righteous. I can't do that. And none of you can do that. And so the cry is, wretched man, who, a wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? This is the cry of the Christian that just wants Jesus. We just want to please God, but it seems within our own efforts, let me say it again, at our own strengths, I can't do it. I can't do it. I keep stumbling. I keep going the wrong way. I keep allowing the wrong desires to lead me. I keep giving in to the temptations that I know I shouldn't give in to. But that's where things turn around. It's that recognition. It's that acknowledgement. That's the best that I can do. That's my very, very best. And so I stop looking at my failings. I stop looking at all my strugglings. And what do I see? I see Christ, don't I? I see Jesus. I see that whatever slavery that my flesh has kept me serving, whatever weakness I could not get strength over, no matter what it was, now I take my eye off of that and I see Jesus Christ. I see in him, as the Bible says, that in him and him alone, I am more than a conqueror. In him I see the victory. Not in me, but in him I see the victory. Why? Because Jesus Christ has become the source of my life. He has become the source of my power. He has become my victory. It never had anything to do with me. That's what I've got to realise. It never had anything to do with my abilities to rise above the sin that so easily besets me. It never has. It never has. This is the cry not of a defeated person. This is the cry of a person who's on the cusp of glorious victory. That's what this cry is. I'm sure every one of you here in this room have experienced the liberating heights in the victory in our experience with Christ. When you have surrendered your will to God's will, and you've said no to sin, you've said no to your weakness, rather than giving into it to then realize the power of God's Spirit moving in you and leading you in directions of righteousness. It's that glorious realization that Christ is living through you. That's what freedom is. That's the freedom that the Bible talks about. It's the freedom that God offers all of us. And that is what we see described in Romans chapter 8. 
It's a life that belongs to every single believer. And it's, but it's one we have to choose. It's one that we have to appropriate as believers. So it says this most famous verse, the very first verse. We know it so well, don't we? Therefore, there is now no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So walking is a deliberate action, isn't it? It's a choice that we make. And when he says there is therefore now no condemnation, this word condemnation literally carries the idea of penal servitude. The scripture is saying there is no reason why a Christian should go on doing, and please hear this, there's no reason why a Christian should go on doing penal servitude as if they have never been pardoned by God, as if they've never been forgiven by God. So they've never been liberated from the prison house of sin that has held every man, every person captive. You've been set free. There is therefore now no condemnation. Let me put it another way. If, if sin is a prison cell that holds every mortal man, and we believe they do, does, doesn't it? You know, then Christ has unlocked the door of that prison cell. I want you to see this in your mind. Christ has unlocked the door of that prison cell and there's no reason for any of us to stay inside that cell. There's no reason for any of us to remain captive by sin. Now that doesn't mean we don't ever stumble. Please don't misunderstand me. It doesn't mean we don't ever stumble. It doesn't mean we don't wrestle with wrong thoughts. It doesn't mean we don't make miserable mistakes. But what it means is we don't have to be held captives as slaves to those things. We are here introduced to the work of the Holy Spirit. It's affecting our liberation. That is affecting our freedom. What does 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 17 say to us? It says to us, where the Spirit of the Lord is, you know it, don't you? There is liberty. There's freedom. It's the liberty, it's the freedom that enables us to see who God really is, and to see who God wants us to be. We're all in process, every single one of us. We're all on a journey. We're all on a path that's leading us to glory. You realize that? that. Again, that's what 2 Corinthians tells us. We have been changed, aren't we? From glory to glory into what? Into what image? His image. His image, you know. Never forget that's what's happening. So we've been freed. And the second verse is to us, for the law of the spirit of life. Let me start with verse one again. You know we're not going to get far, don't you? Um, it says, therefore, now there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not according to the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. So again, every single one of us was bound by the law of sin and death. It governed our lives. Has anybody ever read any of Watchman Nee's writings? Great stuff. Um, he wrote a piece called The Normal Christian Life. And in The Normal Christian Life, he used natural um, laws as an example of the spiritual laws that we all face or are under. 
And he said this, he said, just as the law of gravity is pulling us down, so too is the law of sin and death. Well, just now this is what he said. He said, just as the law of gravity is keeping us earthbound, so too is the law of sin and death keeping us, what we say, flesh bound. See, as we live in this world, you will never, ever escape the pull of sin. It's always going to be there. Just as we will never, ever escape the pull of gravity. Welcome to life upon the planet Earth. That's it. That's why John would say in his epistles, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves. We're liars, you know, self-deception, no. That's what the previous chapter was all about. Remember? For the good that I would do, I don't do. And the things that I, wanted, I don't want to do, I find myself doing. But now in this eighth chapter, he's saying, but the law of the spirit of life, please hear this, has taken effect of my life that I might overcome the effects of the old law of sin and death. Here's another example. I think it was Chuck Smith that said, it's like, it's like, he said it like this. It's like looking at everything in here is plastic. Isn't that horrible? If we had a living plant, it would be great. <laughs> you know, because he, he, this is what he was saying. It's like looking at a living plant. What is a living plant doing? Well, you green fingers. What is it doing? It's growing, but what's it doing? It's growing upward, isn't it? It's making its direction upward. There is a law within it. What is that law? It's the law of life that is moving upward. But what is against it? There's another law against it, isn't there? That's the law of gravity. It's pulling it down. You look at a plant. It's rising up, but its branches are hanging down, aren't they? The law of gravity is pulling it down. But the law of life is a wonderful thing because it's a greater law, isn't it? It's rising against that force and it's reaching towards the sun. Now, we know the plant is ultimately going to lose, isn't it? It's ultimately going to lose, it's going to die, and it's going to be pulled down to the ground, you know. But that's the image that we have here. But the law, the only difference is the law of life in Christ is eternal. And we're not going to lose. We're moving towards our destiny, aren't we? Moving towards our destiny. The law of gravity says that plant should fall. The law of sin says you should fall as well. But the law of life in Christ says you are going to rise. That's what we've got to get a hold of. The life of the Spirit is a life of overcomers. Ones that rise above against that uh, old, weak, corrupted nature that every single one of us know and have experienced. I know it's there. And you know it's there. Do you remember, I, once I told you this I, had this, I had an epiphany, I did. You know, I didn't really know what that word means properly, but you know, I had this epiphany, right? And um, I was, do you remember about the bowl of fruit? Did I ever tell you about the bowl of fruit? And it just revealed to me who I really was. See, we get up in the morning and Donna and I, one of the last things we do is generally take a piece of fruit from the bowl. All right? And something I noticed one morning, I would go to the bowl of fruit and I would rifle through it to find the best piece of fruit. You know, I would push aside all those things that go, old manky, 
Right? You're all probably better people than me, I know that. But it just, well, I, I walked out the door with the best apple from the fruit bowl and, 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 and um, you know, God bless her, my wife, she always takes the stuff that's going off. You know, she is a better person than me. But it just reminded me what's in me. Even something as simple as that. Just reminded me what's really in me. It's all about me, you know. And I think so many people live by that that directive, if you will. You know? So this is what verse 3 says to us. It says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So when it's talking about the law, what's the law? Well, the law of God, we go back to the Ten Commandments, don't we? They're good, aren't they? We go back to the law of the Ten Commandments. And what he's saying there is, for what the law could not do, what it could not do was it could not make me right. It couldn't make me righteous. It couldn't make me acceptable to God. Again, all the law could do, and we've talked about this so much, was to remind me of my weakness and my flesh, that nature, that one that I got from Adam in the beginning. All it could do was to show me what righteousness is really all about. That's why, again, I know I mentioned this last week that's what Jesus was trying to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount when he was telling us that the law of God is spiritual it's about the it's about the heart it's about what's really going on inside a person again he says you might say you've never murdered anybody but if you have hatred in your heart what is hatred it's the seedbed of murder he says you've already murdered people in your heart he says you may not have committed adultery but hey if you've lusted in your heart after someone else's wife then in your heart you've already committed adultery what was he saying he's saying you will never be good enough because every single one of us is guilty of those I don't care how good you think you are or how moral and upright you might think you are. I guarantee you every single one of you has sinned in your heart before God. And you know what that makes you? It makes you imperfect because he is perfect. So Jesus has come to be the perfect substitute for us. That's the wonderful thing about the gospel. All that the law could do was show me what righteousness looks like. It held up God's perfect standards, but because they are spiritual, is what Jesus taught us, I had no power in my flesh, in my own will even, to be able to live by them. And so God in Christ came, did you read it? In the likeness of sinful flesh. Not sinful flesh, but in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, that is God manifest. God clothed himself in human flesh, walked amongst us. And in the likeness of sinful flesh, he came as a man without sin, that he might bear your sin, my sin, upon the cross. It says, he condemned your sin. Verse 4 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. Now, this is what we have to get. We must get this. Jesus has done this so that the righteous requirements of the law, which is what? Perfection, right? That perfection, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled. Please get this. Might be fulfilled in us, 
not by us. Do you see that? Not fulfilled by us, but in us. Now, does this mean that God has given us power that resides within us, that we can have victory over all unrighteousness? Well, we know that's not true, right? Absolutely not. I mean, if think about it just for a moment, would you? You know, if God gave you his power to reside within you, to exercise by your will, what would happen in this world? What would happen? Well, I'll tell you what would happen very quickly. We would become the most self-righteous beings in this planet. It's that simple. No, it is God in you that overcomes sin as you do what? As you yield your life to him. Again, if God gave us his power to reside within us, it would not be long before we are completely all self-righteous. Completely. That's when we'd all have our own bowl of fruit and nobody would be allowed to touch anything in it. Think about it. Think about it for a moment. The spirit-led Christian who yields themselves to the Lord experiences the work of the spirit in their life. That's why we are told in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 13, for it is God which works, hear it, in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. God does not give us a reservoir of power. I have met people who think that is the case. And they always end up disappointed. I'll never remember, I'll never, never forget, sorry, a lady who had this very, this very mentality. She says all Christians have the power of God within them and they should be able to exercise that power whenever they want to do whatever they think needs to be done according to God's purpose. They have the power. And, 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 and she walked around like this. But, you know, I met this woman many years later and, uh, where I work at Bethel and her mother was there and her mother was dying and her mother was struggling in her, old, in her last days. And this woman came who had the power of God residing within her. And she went into that room and she tried to exercise that power that she said she had residing within her to restore her mother to health. Her mother died. You know. And uh, I'll never forget this, meeting this lady in the, in, the, in the corridor outside her mother's room and she said, I don't understand anymore. I just don't understand anymore. And she actually said, I don't think that Jesus gave us enough because her mother died, you know. But she had this concept. It's, it's, it's not the power of God in us, but it is God in us that is working according to his will and his purpose, you know. No, he doesn't give us a reservoir of power, I'll say it again, but he lives his power through us as we yield our lives to him. The yielding, that is me. That's my choice. That's my part. The power of Christ, the spirit of life, that's him. That's the superior law that's at work within all of us. So keep reading with me, will you? It says in verse 5, For they that are after the flesh... Now he's going to describe... He's going to give us a contrast. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh... But they that are after the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. 
because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be, so that they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Go back over these verses. But put simply, what it's saying is a person's mind is either on the things of the flesh or they are on the things of the spirit and that it is manifest in the way that they live their lives. See, you've heard me say this a thousand times and that is there is no hiding a Christian. You can't hide a Christian just as there is what Paul is saying here. There is no hiding a non-believer. Why? What did he say? He says, because they are after the things of the flesh. Let me read it again. They that are after the flesh, says, do mind the things of the flesh. If we go back to what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6, again back on the Sermon on the Mount, he said, the people of this world are described, and I love the way he does it. He says, the people of this world are described as always being concerned with, do you remember what he said? With eating, drinking, and what they're going to wear. And he said they have no concern for the kingdom of God. Their paramount concern, or the controlling concern for the things of their mind, are those things. And if you would stop and look at this world around us, I mean, you look at all of the reality TV shows, well, they're encompassing those very things, aren't they? Now, it's not just reality TV shows. It's reality out there. People are worried about eating, drinking, and clothing. And their lives are totally consumed, totally consumed with the job of providing for, this is what Jesus is saying, for providing for things of the body appetites. It's all they think about. And he says there that that is spiritual death. Now, the body appetites are good, aren't they? Again, you can't misunderstand me here. The body appetites are good and they need to be satisfied. Thirst, of course, hunger, of course, the sex drive. All of these things are good things. Here's what Jesus is saying. This is what Paul is saying. These things are not meant to control our minds. But we are born of the spirit of life. And we live according to the Spirit. We mind spiritual things. Our minds are to be under the control of the Spirit of God as He intended it. So we as believers, we should have a precious awareness of His presence. Do we? That God is with us always? He said He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. He said He'll be with us always, even until the end of the age. God is present right now. And He always will be. You know, so we have this precious awareness that wherever we go, God is with us and we desire more of him and more of the things of God, his love, his purpose, his word, his kingdom. These are the paramount concerns of a spiritual person. Why? Because the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and death. The Bible just told us, didn't it? You know it, don't you? You know it's there. You know the spirit of life is at work within you? Why? Because you're changing. God is changing you. And the thing is, we have a choice. I remember when I didn't have a choice. And I just did what I was led by. And I just did the things that satisfied my carnal nature. 
The body appetites, that's what drove me. We remember that, don't we? Look, they're still there. But I want to be able to say, thankfully, they're not in control anymore. They're being satisfied, they're being looked after, and they're looking after me and likewise. But they're not in control of my life. I have a choice. And there was a time when that choice wasn't there. So you can see the distinctives of those, this is what Paul is saying, without Christ. And I've got to say this, they might be moral, upright citizens. They may be out there running orphanages. They might be sitting in churches this morning. But spiritually, they are dead because Jesus says we need to be born again. They mind the things of the earth. They are earthbound. Notice verse 7. And he says their mind is enmity against God. And that is enmity simply means hostility. They're hostile towards God. They simply cannot subject themselves to the godly things. I mean, you tell people about aliens. You tell people about paranormal experiences. You tell people about, I don't know, the latest, greatest secret for long life. You tell people about all of these things that are placated to the flesh nature and they'll be on board, right? They'll be on board. But just um, say Jesus and they walk away. That's what Corinthians tells us. The Apostle Paul again said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, The natural man receives not the things of God, or the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can they know them because they are spiritually discerned, he said. Like I said, there's no hiding a Christian. Why? For their minds are on the things of the Spirit, and that's how it should be. So he says in verse 9, Christian, you are not in, for you are not in the flesh. He means you're not controlled by bodily appetites of the old nature. But you are in the spirit, it says there. And he goes on, he says, if so be the spirit of God dwells within you. Now, if any man is not of the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, he is not his. This is the challenge, isn't it? This is the challenge of verse 9. The challenge of these opening verses, you know. Do you see him? I've got to ask you this this morning. Do you see Jesus living his life through you? Is he active? Do you see the scriptures? And do you see how they're implied and they work through your life? Do you see Christ becoming preeminent in your desires? Do you experience his nature? Do you experience his character becoming more and more prevalent in your life? I mean, if you look at, uh, we're talking about the, the law of the spirit of life. If you look at the fruit of the spirit given to us in Galatians, you know that passage in Galatians chapter 5? Remember it says the fruit of the spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's long-suffering, it's gentleness, it's goodness, it's faith, it's meekness, it's temperance. It says against such things there is no law. And you look at those characteristics and they are the very characteristics that we see in the life of Christ. And so as we walk in the Spirit, this is what the Scripture is saying. As we walk in the Spirit, we are becoming more and more like Him, aren't we? Our life is becoming like His life. And so it says in verse 10, If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. 
So he's saying your mortal body is going to die because of sin. But your quickened spirit is eternal. And, and we need, I think we need to allow this to resonate within our beings. Your quickened spirit is eternal in Christ. You know what Jesus said? He that lives and believes on me shall... It's a great word. Next word. He that lives and believes on me shall never die. You know, that word never gets bantied around a lot and it's always in a negative context, isn't it? You'll never do that. You'll never make this. That's never going to happen. Never, 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 never. The only time I find this word in the, be or the best of context is this one. Doesn't it sound good? You will never die. You will never die. You know, because your spirit has been quickened, has been made alive. But he says in verse 11, but if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwells within you. Now, that's a whole nother Bible study. That's a whole nother subject for one day. Even this physical body is going to be quickened. And it talks about the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're not going there right now. But right now, as we sit in this place, here in this mortal body, I have life in the spirit of Christ, just as you do. And because of that, doesn't the sun shine a little brighter in Albany? Don't listen to these people from Albany and Bunbury who tells us it's not shining. No, no, no. The sun shines bright. Why? Because Christ is upon the throne, isn't it? You know? and there's a whole new song in your heart because of it. One of rejoicing, one of hope, one of promise. Therefore, brethren, he's got to say this. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. In other words, he's saying, I don't owe my flesh anything. When I think of the pain and I think of the suffering that this thing has put me through and its desires and its passions, I have no debt to pay to it. The Bible tells us death is all that it produces. He says, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live, Paul says there in verse 13. Now, if I take you back to the beginning of this chapter, or the end of the last chapter. What was that passionate cry? O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Well, here it is. This is it. Through the Spirit, I do mortify the deeds of the body, and I shall live. It's a pleading of, it's a pleading of Paul, and it should be a pleading of mine to you, and it should be a pleading of yours to one another. And so I urge you, I, I plead with you, put the deeds of this body to death, you know. Your flesh will tell you every day that you owe it. Won't it? Doesn't it? That you owe it. You don't owe it anything, you know. This is how it goes. This is, if you, this is how it tells you that. You get to the end of the week, you know, and your body, your flesh tells you, you know, I have worked hard all week long. You owe me. And so off you go out into the world to spoil your body, you know. 
Or your body will tell it this way, your flesh will tell you this way. You know, I have put up with that enough. I put up from that person long and long enough. I need some, you owe me some revenge, you know. And off you go, looking, plotting, scheming, full of anger and venom to go and settle your flesh, you know. Or it's going to say, your wife, it's going to say, your husband simply doesn't appreciate all the work that you put into. You owe me. And off you go. And off you go into the world to try and satisfy, appease that flesh desire. And all we're doing is what Galatians tells us. Remember what it says? For he that sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. We let something, we let something that is dead destroy us. That flesh nature. I, I know I've mentioned this before, and, I, and, I, and it could well be what's on the Apostle Paul's mind as he's drawing this whole picture for us this morning. There is an ancient, well, in the ancient world, a particular cruel way of punishing people. Um, and what they would do is they would, uh, they would take a prisoner and they would chain the corpse of another man to the prisoner. And they would leave that person in the cell with a rotting corpse attached to them. It's horrible, isn't it? I mean, that's the ancient world. But that could well be the image that Paul is drawing from here. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, Jesus already has. That's what he wants to say. I mean, I'm very long-winded, I know. And I've taken a long time to say this, but Jesus already has. The corpse has been dealt with. We don't owe our flesh anything. We owe Jesus everything. Isn't that right? Everything. By his spirit, he convicted us. He revealed himself to us. He imparted eternal life to us. And he dwells within each and every one of us just waiting for us to yield our lives to him so that he can do incredible things in us and through us. He wants to live in you and through you. Your problem, I've got to say this, your problem is not the devil, your problem is not your wife, it's not your husband, it's not your job, it's not the weather, your problem is your flesh. That's what the Bible teaches us. And we're told to put it to death. Do you remember that documentary about the bears? I'm not sure what country they came from. I'll finish with this. Um, there were some very well-meaning noble people that went somewhere in Eastern Europe or somewhere, I don't know, over there. And they were saving these bears that were kept in these cages. You've seen it? It's horrible, isn't it? You know, and they're extracting the bile from these creatures for some, I don't know, probably some aphrodisiac or something like that. It's a crazy thinking, you know. And these bears spend their entire lives in these cages that are barely big enough to contain their growing bodies. And these people, wonderful people, they went over there, they petitioned the local governments and communities, and they had some of these bears... Released. In fact, they had some of these bears taken from that country and they were taken to, I think it was, um, I think it was Canada somewhere. And, and this is the scene. They have these bears and they bring them out and they, they're still in their cages. And they put the cage and the cage is sitting in this big open space. If you can picture, I don't know, 
a half a football field and it's surrounded by trees and it's very lush and green and there's soft, beautiful soft turf, this beautiful soft grass there. And they take this cage and they put it on there and then they open the door and just walk away and walk away. What do you think happens? They don't move, do they? They don't move. They don't leave their cage, but they keep the focus on the cage. They keep watching the cage. They don't prompt them or prod them or drag them or anything like that. They just watch them. And and you see the footage, it's amazing. You watch these these bears who put a foot outside of the cage. And you've got to remember, the pads on these animals have never, ever touched soft grass. Never. You know? And you see the pad go out there, it hits the soft graft and bang, it comes straight back in. And they recoil back into their cage and they sat there. And I can't remember how long it was, but you know, it, they just gradually and slowly began to leave that which held them captive into the freedom and the liberty of the new life that, that they'd been given. And it's wonderful, you know, you see footage from a few days later, you see these bears just frolicking around on this soft grass and all over each other. They'd never touched another bear themselves, you know. Never experienced that, 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 that unity of fellowship with a creature of their own kind. And it was just incredible. It's a picture of what God has done for us. We don't have to stay in the cage of sin. You know, and I know some of us are ensnared by things that we think we're never, ever going to be set free from. There's a flesh nature that is demanding to be satisfied in each and every one of you. And I know some of you are captive to it. I know some of you are. But you don't have to be. We don't have to be. We can step out of that cage at any time because there is a superior law at work within you. It's the law of the spirit of life, the life of God that is active within you and it's going to set you on a course. And once you step out of that cage and you step on that beautiful soft green grass and you lift your eyes towards your saviour, you see him in your view and you are drawn towards him and you begin to hear his voice, you begin to understand what purity and holiness and righteousness is really all about. And as you see that, the ugliness of sin becomes so apparent and that thing that you once worshipped, that thing that once had a grip on you and controlled you, suddenly becomes the the vilest, most disgusting thing in your world and you don't want anything to do with it ever again. Now that's victory, isn't it? That's freedom, isn't it? I've often said the greatest freedom is a two-letter word starts with N and ends in O. It's to be able to say no. Just say no to the flesh and yes to Christ. It's great power in that. Walk away from it. It's defeated, it's dead. Paul's going to talk, oh, I won't go there, I'm out of time. God bless you. You know, this is um, certainly a great opportunity. I'm not sure what the clock is saying. It is getting late. It's a great opportunity for us to gather around the communion table together and uh, just reflect upon the great price that was paid that we can know this liberty. We can know this freedom that has set us free. Of course, it's Christ who went to the cross for us.